Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a mm, real POS? You need Shopify for retail. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into the one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers in line and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Get hardware that fits your business. Take payments by smartphone, transform your tablet into a point-of-sale system, or use Shopify's POS Go mobile device for a battle-tested solution. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash theathletic, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash theathletic to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash theathletic. This is The Athletic Baseball Show on The Athletic Podcast Network. Greetings and welcome to Starkville. Baseball Hall of Famer Jason Stark. And then the robot said, strike. That's why you're going in the Hall of Fame. It's an inside the park home run. Doug Gladwell. Mike tried his coffee at Starbucks with a double latte skinny. Doug, are you ready to make some podcast magic? I am ready. Bring on the magic wand. Let's do it. <laughs> Greetings and welcome to Starkville, now part of the Athletic Baseball Show, where you will find great baseball talk all week long, all offseason long, and as we keep proving, even all lockout long. I'm Jason Stark. I write about baseball for the Athletic, joined, as always, by my good friend, writer, broadcaster, professor, Emmy winner, and distinguished former major leaguer, Doug Glanville. Doug, how are you, my friend? I'm guessing that you're bracing for the big bomb cyclone snowstorm that's about to hit the wilds of Connecticut. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I think well, I think Massachusetts is going to get pretty bad. They keep changing the forecast, but I think we're getting supposedly maybe four to eight inches on Saturday. But uh, four keep, to eight or forty-eight? Oh well, yeah, four four to eight. Although I was in Chicago for a, a, a bad one, like in the early 2010s so no i think i think we'll be all right i'm, I'm super prepared i have ice snow generators snow blowers i mean bring it on bring it on nor'easter uh-huh. there's, there's no better weather term than bomb cyclone don't you think <laughs> no there's not really it's an all-timer it's got to be like a baseball term can we put that in there it's like a hitting hey for the, the I, cyclone. i'm cyclone. definitely using this yeah it's like a cyclone. Bombs, we, we've got to popularize bomb cyclone so we can then use it to describe Home runs. A solo, a two-run, a three-run, and a grand slam. I don't yeah. know if anybody's ever done that. Uh, <laughs> Probably not. The bomb cyclone? Yeah. Right. Well, well, stay tuned. Uh, look, as you know, uh, we normally do this show on Tuesdays. As you also no doubt know, it's not Tuesday. <laughs> like We stalled a couple of days so we could take in the uh, panorama of the Hall of Fame election. 
uh, and that election happened. David Ortiz is in, in the Hall of Fame. Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Kurt Schilling, they are out. Um, so today we're, we're going to spare you lockout talk. You're welcome. And spend pretty much this whole show just talking about that election. Uh, so coming up in a few minutes, Peter Gammons will make his first ever visit to Starkville. Uh, Peter has a few big poppy stories, just a few. So this will be amazing. But first, uh, Doug, look, this was an election that included the biggest stars of the era that you played in. So I, I, I kind of want to just let you talk. What did you, Doug Glanville, make of the 2022 Hall of Fame election? Well, Jay, I mean, I, I kind of describe it as like stressful, quite frankly. I mean, I think it was strange. I think as it got closer, and I kind of, you know, talked to people over the last couple of months, and we knew this was coming for a long time. I knew my era would eventually be the centerpiece and the greatest <laughs> yeah. players of my time. And I also knew that's going to collide with PEDs. And, and, I, and I don't envy the writers, the voters, because it's just so unclear. It's so unclear and it's so difficult. But I think the stress of it was that, um, you know, players – you know, my view has always been the same, like players that chose to go down the PED road. And I just don't, you know, that's not someone I would vote for if I had a vote. But I also understand the complexity of, first of all, would you even know that about a player? <laughs> you wouldn't know. You know, sometimes there's there's plenty of players that got away with it. There's plenty of players that, you know, there could be all kinds of, you know, exceptions or reasons or medical, whatever it was that can convolute it. But I also look at it from my playing days and think about being on the same field as these guys and knowing that there was great players, certainly statistically, performers, but also knowing how hard it was to compete and stay on that playing field when it really wasn't level. It was a period that it was heavily tilted towards the home run and to players that produced the home run. And when you're trying to you know, beat them as a team or beat them because I'm facing someone on a mound, that has this competitive advantage, and, and I would completely declare unfair advantage, it, it makes you reflect on how do you preserve the greatness of this era? Because there was greatness. There was players that played clean. There was players that, you know, many players that whether they did or didn't, might have done something that was notable because that is the, you know, that's what we do in baseball. We count. And when you break records, you know, and I was sitting on the field when McGuire and so, so, you know, I get it. I, you know, I, I was, it was exciting. It was fun. I understood all that, but I also always had this thing in the back of my head of this feeling like, you know, these guys are, are the fastest way to make my career irrelevant, to lose my story in this. And, you know, because it's hard to beat these guys when they have advantages and, and some of which were already epically talented anyway. And it was kind of this, this level of greed masking a certain level of insecurity so that's the unfortunate side of a, a time that I was celebrating the greatest accomplishment of being able to make it to the major leagues and head down trying to perform, knowing that all around me was swirling this, this X factor that not only casted doubt on people unfairly at different times, but also just casted doubt on the authenticity of, of the performance and, and the struggle to stay in that league, which is already hard enough. And it's hard for me to, you know, it's hard for me to disaggregate that in, in many ways. You know, you look at Manny Ramirez, who I was drafted one pick in front of, and, you know, great, you know he was your greatest right-handed hitter of all time. And, and, I, and I just think it's 
one thing to acknowledge the history, and that's fine. We should, and we should learn from it. It's another thing to celebrate it. And I think, you know, you know, I, I think the line that's stuck with me a lot I've heard lately is if you, if you can't tell the story of something without someone, then that, you know, that tells you that how important that someone was. And I, and we have to make a distinction between celebrating that someone and recognizing maybe the notoriety notoriety of their decision or recognizing like we we can we can't tell the story of baseball without the black Sox or sign stealing or whatever and and that but that doesn't mean i'm putting a statue up to the black Sox or the statue you know what i'm saying like there's you you or or segregation or all the things that are also part of the history that we should recognize and acknowledge that's different than putting someone in a shrine and i don't think it's enough to say because you made history you, you should have a shrine. And, and I think the problem I have is when you, it is our nature to be drawn to people who are on top of the pedestal. It's, it's just natural to be drawn to superheroes. But the truth is of history is that they aren't the ones that really changed the world. You, you know, yes, Martin Luther King was an incredible orator and did amazing things, but it also took NAACP in the courtroom and SCLC and it took people marching on the streets who are nameless in graves somewhere in South Carolina. It takes all of these people. And, and so I think when you have players that ex- went to this level to do whatever it takes, quote, to win, regardless of rules or fairness, and you, you kind of reduce to rubble the stories of those that may be nameless just because they didn't eclipse a thousand hits or whatever it is, but still contributed to the fabric and the story and the passing on generation after generation, because most of us are not going to get in the Hall of Fame. It doesn't mean our story is invisible. But the more we celebrate people that cut corners and, and didn't you know, play in a way with integrity to preserve fair competition, the farther we get really get away from being able to authentically say these stories matter. The Bud Fowlers of the word matter. Uh, you know, the Buck O'Neills matter. Uh, that's that's important to recognize that you can't have it both ways. You can't, you know, count on make you know count for the sake of saying, well, oh, just because you're on top of the list, I don't care how you got there. Just because you're on top of it, we just have to put you in. I just think that's you know you're not contextualizing anything, and nobody knows what Doug Glanville would be would have been as a player if I took PEDs since I was 17. Nobody knows that. Well, one, I could have been in the grave. Who knows? But nobody can say what I would be and how long I would have played and how much more money I would have made or, or how many championships I would have won or how I would have been seen as a winning player or whatever because of my will to go as far as I would to make it, to to be great. And, and that is not just, I don't think we need to frame that as a noble trait to, to do whatever it takes to win a ball game. I don't think that's actually noble. I think it's doing to celebrate what we all agree on is that we need fair competition. We need an ability to promote excellence and we need to do it through humanity and in a way that everybody's on the same field. So, so that being said, of course, I look at these players and I look at this time and I see some amazing, amazing moments of my life in my career and uh, I just have I, I fall short of being able to frame some of these great players statistically in being able to assess what they actually did because I don't know how authentic it was and that's that's my quandary and I feel bad for the voters because I think they have a a, a very difficult order but I 100% agree that they have to continue to try to fight to create standards it, it's not perfect the voters are human too but you can't just let it go. You can't just be like, okay, everybody, fine. We don't know. We're just going to go off of numbers. 
I think that would, you, you got to fight it. And inevitably another generation will eventually say, you know what, we're going to forget all this and we're just going to let, and that's their choice. But I think that you, you still have to be a guardian and a steward of, of, of standards to the best of your ability, knowing it's flawed, knowing sometimes innocent people get caught up and you try to fix that. But th that was just a, a, there's no era in, in baseball history that did more damage to players that tried to go out there and just play it straight than the steroid era. There's, there's no other. And so I don't know what you do with that, <laughs> but, um, yeah. but I still love the game and I just want it to be better. And I think we're trying. All right. Well, you, you, you paint a great portrait of action and consequences <laughs> and the consequence of the action for Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, Sammy Sosa was that their time on our ballot came and went and they're not in the hall of fame. They may never be in the Hall of Fame. And yet, um, I, I, I want to pose a couple of things to you that I've wrestled with this week and that I've written about this week. Um, one is the thing you just mentioned. All right, so how should we vote? But the other part is, and I, I, I wrote about this in a mailbag column that you can find on The Athletic right now, and it, I, I posed the question, what kind of Hall of Fame should we aspire to have? And that's a really difficult question. And Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens embody why it's so difficult. I, like, I didn't vote for him every year. I wound up voting for him at the end. I was uncomfortable with voting for them, knowing what I know, but also knowing what I don't know. And it just feels, there's something about it that feels uncomfortable to me, that the man who hit the most home runs in history is not in the Hall of Fame. And the guy who won the most Cy Youngs in history is not in the Hall of Fame. And I feel like we've just had a period of time to shape as voters what kind of Hall of Fame we want to have. And even though... In the end, two-thirds of us wound up voting for Barry Bonds. What we wound up with was the Hall of Fame that you just described. But all right, here is the problem with that. So what are our choices for what kind of Hall of Fame we should have? One is the Hall of Purity. The problem is that's not possible. It's not possible to have the Hall of Purity. We don't have enough information on that generation to know who did what. That's a that's a one big problem. The other problem, man, is if you're going to have a Hall of Purity, don't you have to start going in and throwing people out? Gaylord Perry, who cheated and wrote a book about it, was proud about it, and we all laugh about it. Every ball scuffer, every bat corker, everyone who got involved in any sort of rapscallion-type behavior. And there are a lot of people in the Hall of Fame who fall into that category and players who did stuff in the PED era that we don't even know. They never showed up on in Jose Canseco's book, right? Like, we just they just never became a topic. Explain to me, Doug, how we should deal with voting in that context, and that big question, what kind of Hall of Fame do we aspire to have? Well, I think the first thing I would say is that 
awards, baseball, like anything else in life, is a function of time. And we have to recognize that we're, we're an evolving society. It moves with time. And what you know now, you know, you may not know later. You're going to learn something new. And that's what we always grapple with in anything, in history. I mean, look, if you go... Just take a period of time where there is no black players. I mean, you know, there's all kinds of errors that we we have to recognize, and that's why I think the hall of the hall itself is also a museum, and there's an unapologetic history that is very safe from the standpoint of you don't have to make those judgments, and I think that's an important part of what the hall of fame is. But any award, you know, we talked about the Emmys in the beginning of the show. Any award is gonna be colored with voters and our own biases and human frailties. It's always going to be imperfect and we try to take the information that we have at hand. And, but what I, what I, I don't think there's necessarily has to be this opposite, right? Like, okay, just because I'm trying to create some sort of standards around something, uh, and, and really that something is, look, okay, if we're saying the guy has a, the most home runs or most hits, but you got it by completely juicing up, or, you know, all right, I have the most money in the world, but I stole from everybody under the sun. I mean, I don't know how do you, you have to have some reconciliation for how you actually got the numbers by which you are being measured by. That, I mean, that's that's the game. I, 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 like, I, I don't disagree, but like, how do you do it? How do oh, we know who did what? Right, how no, are we supposed right. to handle it? We, it's, <laughs> look, I there's so many decisions we have to make. They're all impossible. Right, well, I agree. <laughs> I, and once again, see that sentiment that you feel and I feel, is exactly the problem with this whole thing in the first place. That's what happens when people run roughshod on fair competition, because now we sit here, we don't even know what we saw. We can't even, and we want to be fair to people because we don't want to lump people in unfairly. That's exactly the problem. That frustration, it's, why, why do we have to feel it? Let them feel it, okay? They made the choice. You know, like I say, they should be uncomfortable. They should. It should be tough to get in the Hall of Fame, really tough. Roberto Clemente, Jackie Robinson, whatever. And are they perfect people? No, but it should be hard. And we, but we have the right to continue to reevaluate and reassess about where we are in time, and it's going to change. And the and the next generation, like one day, women will be in, in Major League Baseball. So then, what do we got? We have to rethink this, right? That's fine. That's hu- that's human advancement, evolution, change, it's all part of it. And I think we, we shouldn't shy away from that because, okay, well, maybe this guy got in because he, he, he got he like found the loophole and, and then just give up and be like, well, let's just put everybody in. And I know the hall, I know the voters didn't do that, but it is, it's, a, it's an impossible charge. And I think instead of the blame that goes on voters in the hall trying to have some standards, maybe, maybe it's the other way around. The hall should be the one mad that people just decided to just throw everything away and just not just stand on the shoulders of people in the past, but trample people in the past because all they cared about were, were these numbers. And, and so, yeah, that should be discouraged. How do you do it? I'm not saying there's an answer. But, but the, the idea of purity, like I'm not looking for people saying like, oh, you have to be like Mother Teresa or whatever, like, like Kurt Schilling, whatever, okay, he, whatever he votes, it does, that should not be relevant to like what he did on the field. It shouldn't. And so... But everybody makes that choice, you know, and I know he said things or whatever, but that he didn't want to be in and all these other things. But that's that's different than like, go just go back in the 20s or whatever, when you're in Jim Crow America and you have people that are just openly racist. Oh, yeah. I mean, but that was the time. I'm not saying it's a good thing. 
but that was the time. And if you're judging it on some level of performance, which I do, no matter what they say about morals, clause, in the end, it, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to measure. That's harder than anything to try to judge people morally. But you, you do have numbers, and that's the safety valve we've always had. And now that isn't even clear. So that's the mess that that era created. <laughs> that's the mess. And, and maybe it's always part of humanity that this is, this is just what we face. And that's what we have to deal with. Well, I think we need to continue to rise to the challenge. What is the answer? Well, I think I, think I felt better, quite frankly, when certain players didn't get in that are completely PED-ridden. However, however I, my, I won't say sympathy, but where I think is a problem for Clemens and a Bond is because they were so pr- productive as performers and broke records, I think that's why the microscope ended on them. But there's all these people that, like you said, you'll never know about who had pretty good careers that were like fourth outfielders for 10 years and didn't even notice that were also on the stuff and and, well, and and we'll just not know. And that's that's what's unfair to Bonds and Clemens. But that's what well, happens well, when you break records and trample on <laughs> history. That's what so happens. You say that like that's why people care about PED use in baseball in a way that they don't with the other sports. Yeah. Why is that? Because the records that Mark McGuire and Barry Bonds broke were the greatest records in sports. And now they are like, I don't want to say they're meaningless, but they're just another line in the book. Um, yeah. You're like your little old grandmother's walking down Main Street in uh, Connecticut, knew how many home runs exactly Babe Ruth hit. They knew how many home runs Roger Maris hit. Yeah. Do they have any idea how many home runs Barry Bonds hit? They don't because those records were ruined by this this whole PED debacle. And in, in, like you can almost make the case that even the Hall of Fame, um, we just, I just asked you what you made of the Hall of Fame and we spent I don't know how many minutes talking about guys who didn't get in. We barely mentioned the guy who did, David Ortiz. And like I understand that there's some clouds there with him too. But this is what we've dealt with now, Doug, for a decade and a half. Yeah. Like this, like this argument never ends. It's on a continuous loop, audio and video. We're stuck in that moment. We can't get out of it. And everybody else gets trampled. You're, you know, like the, the, the achievements of Doug Glanville and many others, they were obscured by this. David Ortiz's Hall of Fame celebration in some ways is obscured by this. But here's the thing. I don't want this show to be obscured by this. And that's why we're going to bring in Peter Gammons and we're going to mostly talk about the uplifting parts of the David Ortiz story. How does that work for you? That works good for me. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. 
Don't just ride the index. Seek to outperform it with Fidelity Active ETFs. Learn more at fidelity.com slash active ETFs. Before investing in any exchange-traded fund, you should consider its investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Contact Fidelity for a prospectus, an offering circular, or if available, a summary prospectus containing this information. Read it carefully. While active ETFs offer the potential to outperform an index, these products may more significantly trail an index as compared with passive ETFs. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC, member NYSE, SIPC. Doug, you know I love talking Hall of Fame, and I want everybody out there to make sure they do not touch that podcast dial, because Doug will be back later in this show to tell big poppy stories and to reveal an astonishing big poppy feat never before revealed to the American public. Okay, But first, we get to welcome in a man who has known David Ortiz longer than any of us and has a few epic stories himself it's the man the legend our friend and teammate at the athletic it's the great peter gammons peter i cannot believe you are just making your first visit to starkville so we are so honored to have you (laughs) well i'm honored uh it's our honor starkville is greater for your presence (laughs) and look man there is so many great topics that we can serve up to you especially in hall of fame week but we have to start with David Ortiz, man. I, I always thought of you, Peter, as the face of baseball in Boston. I think somehow or other, Big Poppy has passed you. I don't know how that could have been possible, but think back. Do you remember the first time that you saw, or even better yet, met David Ortiz? Yes, it was, um, I believe, 2001, 2001 or 2002. He hit a bomb over the over the right field foul pole in Fenway Park, right. playing as a twin. The ball was called foul. Um, <laughs> I thought it was fair, and certainly David Ortiz thought it was fair because he did have a monumental temper, uh, especially early on. And um, he 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 got ended up getting thrown out of the game, was, you know, quite a bit. And I just got the sense that the the, the management of the twins was not happy with him but you know he's a young guy as i say i mean i'm talking to uh uh ramon vasquez who's now a red sox coach but was they were they were together in 2005 i mean 1995 in the arizona of rookie league they were roommates there so he he could really go with a trace back and he was telling me Early on in his career, his temper was a problem, and it certainly was then. And I got the sense um, after the game, I just went and, and over and talked to him because I thought, you know, it, it it's almost no way, as you guys know, of really knowing whether the ball's fair or foul. If you hit high enough yeah. over that foul ball, nobody really <laughs> knows whether it's fair or foul. And um, so, you know, he was, he was pretty frustrated, but um, – he was kind of curious about someone who was just, you know, in the stands watching the game as a, a as an observer coming up to talking to him. And, By that and, you mean uh, you? Um, oh, he didn't know who I was. That's fine. But he, but I think it was also a way of being able to get the grievance off his off his shoulders and have a neutral bystander <laughs> sympathizing with him. And and 
So, but then when he came over to Boston uh, in in 2003, it was released in December of 2002. And Pedro was, in, there were a lot of people in Theo Epstein's ear about that. And I, mean, I remember he called me to let me know that um, the Red Sox were signing him. And he thought I'd be excited and all that, which I was. I thought it was a fascinating experience. I mean, you, you, we had Mo Vaughn. We've had so many guys that were really good left-handed hitters at using the wall. Fred Lynn. I remember the first day he took batting practice at Fenway Park and hit the wall like <laughs> 10 straight pitches. And um, I just thought that that might be what he was um, with that power. And, and, you know, you could – as long as you just made contact, you had a chance to hit the ball off the wall or hit it in the net if you were that strong. And then uh, he came over, and he was immediately fun. Now, that 2003 team with Johnny Damon and Kevin Millar and the guys they had on that team, it was you – know, they called themselves the idiots, and they were, <laughs> they were really fun. But it was a great team to be around. I mean, you had to have that personality come from three, down to 3 nothing in a playoff series. And he just added to it. And immediately, he, he would do things that, I mean, Jeff Horgan was writing at the Boston Herald at the time. And he and I, we used to, we used to like push each other out of the way to go <laughs> talk to Ortiz every day because there was always something funny and some story. Now, when he played in Appleton, Wisconsin, he, 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 he got married. And um, so in the off season, he stayed in, in, in right outside of Green Bay, where where his wife's father was a high school principal. And the stories he would tell, plus he acted out. I mean, he's an actor as well. And we, he won some some lottery, so that he got like a thousand dollars in one dollar bills. So and it was it was in a big huge Ziploc bag. So you know, so he. He, he would tell the story and carry it out in the clubhouse where he would he would go he went through the stands he was wearing a fur coat and going through the stands i mean imagine this you know i mean a dominican guy wandering through in a mink coat wandering through the stands with a with a whole you know bag full of one dollar bills and then he what he did is he react i mean reenact the process of Throwing, all, taking out all the dollar bills, he was wandering through the crowd before a Green Bay Packers game, throwing money into the stands. And we thought, like, this is the funniest guy we've ever met in our lives. And, and uh, he was a very important part of the growth of a sense of humor on that team. Now, you know, I mean, Millar w w was absolutely a leader in that way. And but once he arrived, too, it was very important. No one ever complained about Manny Ramirez in the first couple of years he was there. And I think, you know, Manny was, he did have the blow up in 2008, but most of the time life was really good as long as David was around David and then later Mike Lowell. And I think it was so good for the team because I mean, I think Doug, you agree with me. There aren't many people we've ever seen hit that were as good as Manny Ramirez. And, you know, he was, he was flighty, <laughs> but he was also really fun. And David could make him laugh all the time. And Pedro would make him laugh. And that group of people, plus there was something very different 
about all the culture in the stands at that time. Because Pedro had changed a lot. But by the time the Red Sox were good, to be honest, all the Dominican fans, the tickets were so expensive, it was hard for them to get in. They weren't, the Red Sox didn't make adjustments to say, oh, let's, you know, let's, let, let's put a thousand Dominican fans in the ballpark. They were making money. And, but David came along, and now you had two of the most popular, automatically, two of the most popular players uh, that I can ever remember in Fenway Park on the same team, two guys from the Dominican Republic. It, it changed so much of the culture. Ten years before was not always that way, to say the least. And uh, it, it was, he made a huge difference. And I, I actually, when I got back to my hotel after the Red Sox beat Tampa Bay last year at home, and their fans were nuts. The last, it was a, as much noise as I can ever remember in Fenway Park, because it was a very much younger crowd. But I'm walking back to the hotel, going over the David <laughs> Ortiz Bridge, which is a very simple walk bridge over the Mass Turnpike. But these two guys, about I would say about 20, 21 years old, started walking over the David Ortiz Bridge and yelling, you know, this is our bleeping <laughs> bridge and nobody's going to be able to take it away from us. And I'm thinking, the impact of that now, that was eight years after that, that, that moment. Let's just set the scene here. Okay, this is 2013. Um, the Boston Marathon bombing had happened, what, a week earlier? Red Sox had just come back from the road trip after the bombing. Baseball was the first day back at Fenway. And it felt to me like David Ortiz pulled the city of Boston together in a way that no one else could have you were there in that dugout so tell us the story of that day and the speech that david ortiz gave well they had a huge two or three, i think it was two or three hour ceremony on the field with survivors people who helped out uh and they did incredible stuff with video of the the, the victims of that bombing one of them was a young man his last name was richard who was eight years old and that was probably the, he was the most dramatic figure, greatly impacted, obviously, by being killed in that bombing. And they showed that. And I was at the end of the dugout, sort of where the players were supposed to each go up and then go out on the field. You now, several players had gone. I think he was probably the 15th or 16th player who was going to go out on the field. But Right before it was his time, he came down to dugout and, I mean, he was in a rage and he grabbed me and he said, those bleepers, that, that kid's eight years old. My son is eight years old. I mean, this is, and he was in a rage when he went out in the field and he took the microphone and made that speech and it just galvanized everyone in the England. He said what everybody who lived in the England wanted to say because I mean, you know, Jason, the Marathon Day in Boston is a holiday. People are all out in the streets from Hopkinton to, to, to uh, Copley Square. It's a, it's a holiday. And the Red Sox play at 11 o'clock in the morning, and the marathoners go by as the, as the game is just about over. It's a, it's, a, it's a very dramatic day there. And for him to do that, it was funny. There were a few people that said, oh, my goodness, well, the language you used. Well, you know what? 
Um, it, it just, again, it was everything that people wanted. Everyone wanted to say that. Only his words echoed across not only New England, but the whole country. I think it was the first time anyone in Boston relaxed in, in, in that time. And I lived in Brookline at the time, and I you just... It seemed like all day, every day, hearing sirens go off and everything. And that became such a rallying cry and still is. I mean, people uh, talk about that uh, constantly. And then, as I say, I mean, last year, they, they win a, a playoff series they weren't expected to win. And people are walking back and going over the David Ortiz Bridge and Guys are yelling about this is our bleeping bridge and nobody's going to take it away from us. And I thought, this is tremendous, the impact of that. He hasn't played in five years, and yet you know, it's still there. And it's a it's a celebratory um, statement. His impact, the humor, I mean, his commercial, he did a commercial with Tom Brady, and it was like Tom Brady wasn't even <laughs> in the commercial. Well, Peter, I mean, you know, I always think of Ortiz. I mean, you know, you capture him so well because he was always fun-loving and open and gregarious. And But I'm also curious about how you saw him as a player. You know, there's, you know, if you think of David Ortiz early on, like you mentioned, he had the ability to pepper the wall. And he had seasons where he was tremendous going to the opposite field. But for him to really get to the next level, his power game had to emerge to being able to pull the ball. Did you notice, like the adjustments you made from maintaining being a good hitter, but also adding that power element to be that middle of the lineup guy that can drive the ball uh, to right field with authority. Yes. Cause he, he was an intense worker. Um, and his ability to concentrate on the craft of hitting was amazing. I mean, it's, he, he did a ton of hitting. He thought about it a lot. He watched a lot of video he worked very hard at being a great a great player. Um, it wasn't just a guy that walked up and you know just slugged. He was really dedicated to it, and he did constantly improve. Especially he moved away from the plate. Um, he learned to take a great deal of time at the plate. And I know it used to drive other teams crazy that you know he'd be he'd take it seemed like it was a minute as he moved around the batter's box and dug himself. But that was it was it was also about concentration and thinking and th okay this is what the pitcher's going to throw to me and so forth. Um, when they started talking about the pitch clock, he was one of the most <laughs> vociferous players about being upset because he wanted that time to think. And yeah, you know, that that's what he did. I remember doing a talk show and they said, "Well, I'm, we're tired of hearing David Ortiz complain about that." <laughs> I said, first of all, you and I haven't put in the hours at one part of a craft the way he has. He is unbelievably proud. Uh, and you have to, that's part of what makes him great. All those things that makes him so good, you know, maybe they're not completely normal or, you know, maybe you, it's not what you like in times of game and so forth. But David Ortiz wants to be great. He loves to win. And, um, I really respected him for the, the work he did. Just, um, I mean, there, there are other players over all the years that I've covered that absolutely marveled at what they, what they did. I mean, I, I feel that way about J.D. Martinez now. 
Um, you, you touched on something a few minutes ago that I, I've got to circle back to. Uh, you, you told this story uh, Tuesday night on MLB Network. Uh, it was fantastic about the home run derby. Now, somehow or other, you had actual video highlights of this home run derby in Appleton, Wisconsin. Okay, I would like to. I would like to thank L- MLB Network crazy. for that. They did an right, incredible so wait, job. But what, like, what year was this? David Ortiz was a Mariners minor leaguer. Where was the derby? Who else was in it? What happened? <laughs> And, of course, he was then playing under yes. the name of David Arias. <laughs> right. Play to so, be named later. He was 20 years old. 1990, uh, 1996, he was 20 years old. Uh, it was the day before A-Rod's 26th birthday, I mean, uh, 21st <laughs> birthday, and Junior was 26. So the, I believe the Mariners were playing in Chicago the next day. So in the, in the past... Major League teams would go play exhibitions with certain minor league fr- franchises. The Mariners stopped to play in in uh, Appleton, Wisconsin. <laughs> and um, so they had a little impromptu home run hitting contest before the game. I don't think many other players were in it, but they had it, and it was junior. Um, who I don't think was really into it too much, and I don't, I don't play. But A-Rod was really into it. And and, uh, and David and uh, and A Rod was A Rod was mighty big at that time too. I mean, for a shortstop, it was it was pretty imposing. But the amazing thing about David is, you know, people talk about different things. You look at him, and he looked like like a, a All American uh, defensive end who was then going into the NFL as a rush linebacker because he, he not only was he about six four two thirty. But he was really cut. I mean, and his the home runs. He, the, the, the we had I think three swings, all balls he hit out of the ballpark, and he, it was you know it was really cool. I couldn't believe it when somebody that that um, somebody mentioned it to me about a year ago, and I thought, well, that's something I could will never ever find. So you know, but <laughs> they found it, and it was like. It's so great to think. I don't know what happens in the next few years with A. Rod, but they're three of the the three of the great hitters that I've had the privilege to cover since I first did it every day in 1972. I mean, they're three people that um, I have great admiration for, and to think these three guys were so young in 1996. August twenty, I mean July 29th, playing in that game and playing in the game, and then also in this home run derby is so cool to me. It's, it's just, it's just a, like the whole idea of Big Poppy, Alex Rodriguez, Ken Griffey Jr. in a home run hitting contest in Appleton, Wisconsin. Just a, it's mind blowing. But there's something else about David. You know, I, I, I the piece I wrote about him. And this election on Tuesday night, I called him a human highlight magician. <laughs> and you were there for a lot of those highlight moments, the David Ortiz moments. We're talking about game-changing, franchise-changing, curse-changing <laughs> moments against the Yankees in that 2004 ALCS. I know you were there covering it for 
ESPN. What do you remember about him and those games? Well, the extra inning game, I mean, you come, uh, uh, actually go back before the game. So I'm at the ballpark at two o'clock and Millar comes out of the clubhouse. And, you know, I mean, they lost like 18 to seven the night right. before to the Yankees. And the series was clearly over. And um, Millar comes up and he, he's not even fully dressed, but he comes out and he goes, Petey, I'll tell you, if they don't win, if the Yankees don't win tonight, they're done. They're done. They can't win. I mean, we got Shill, we got we got Pedro, and you know, Derek Lowe's one of the most underrated pitchers in baseball. And you know, he said, "We win." Well, they go back to New York with the threat of throwing this, blowing this series. I mean, they'll never win. And you know, so then by the time everybody's out for batting practice, Millar's telling this to everybody, and. Poppy was laughing so hard, and uh, and uh, he came over. He walked by me and he said, "You know, well, I was right. I mean, all we have to do is win tonight. Find one way to win tonight, and um, we're going to win the series. I'm mean, no doubt." <laughs> I'm laughing, and then he, he comes up in whatever <laughs> inning it was, twelfth inning or whatever. I guess poor Paul Quantrill could barely walk um, and uh, it hits the home run into the bleachers. And, you know, walking home, I was thinking, you know, there really is something here. You know, I mean, Shill is Shill. Is Shill. Doesn't matter if he's throwing 89 or throwing 99. There's something about him. Pedro, I mean, because that was the year that he had said something about how you know losing to the Yankees and all that kind of thing, and uh, they become they became his daddy. And then um, there was just so much on that team. And then for Ortiz to to end up you know hitting uh, hitting the home run in extra innings. And then, okay, now they're on to another day. And then um, he goes and he gets the game winning hit. Yeah, game five. And um, you know it's he's thinking. These guys actually do this, but it took, to me, it, it, it's so is why I, I always said that that I really believe you have to have a few people who just don't aren't burdened down by the fear of losing. They just like just crazy enough to not even consider it. And Roger Angel always used to say to me, Peter, we get down to the sixth or seventh games of the World Series. Team having the most win, the most fun, always wins. It was that Ortiz could walk, walk the walk, and and, and talk the talk, and, and 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 do those things that that had to be done. I mean, and it didn't matter how many times he did it. I mean, it was still an incredible moment when he when he hit the home run in, 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 against the Tigers when they were down when they were down five to one at one point to Scherzer. Um, it's it, whenever he did it, it, it electrified the crowd. And one of the loudest days in all my years um, going to Fenway Park came in 2005, the next year. Now, obviously, it's still a glow because it was May, but they were losing to the Orioles, um, who were in first place, but it's, it was May. And... Um, it was an afternoon game, and it was absolutely beautiful. And the game's basically over. The the the, the Orioles had the uh, 
had the two-run lead, ninth inning, and he's down to one last strike. B.J. Ryan, who I thought was as nasty left on left as any any pitcher in the American League for for many years. You now you figure, okay, he blows Poppy away. 0-2 off the back wall above the center field bleachers, and the noise, the, the sound of that park, people didn't leave, and – it was it, it was deafening, and I'm I walked home. Took me about forty minutes from from uh, Fenway Park to uh, for where I lived in in Brookline, and they just kept. It was so wild. They just kept playing Dirty Water <laughs> for like I think they must have done it for an hour because by the time it was out of my my range, walking home, um, it, it I, I it, was, it was as if it was clear they were just going to play it and. No one. I never heard anyone complain about that. That sound uh, blaring out over the whole Fens and, and Boston area, because it was just yeah. They had won the year before, but again, it was it was David Ortiz. I can remember it's like going down the you know blocks all past the hospitals and the blocks from Fenway Park, and people just walking by me. David Ortiz and. They've got a lot of great players there, but no one quite had that same ring to them. Um, that it was David Ortiz, so therefore it we've just turned this into a holiday. Who cares about work the rest of the day? Um, we're all going to go home. We're going to go probably have a few beverages, have a good time. And I, for a city like Boston to have to have those two guys become two of the I don't know, eight most important players in in a hundred something years, uh, as far as the nature, the makeup, and the fandom of the of the franchise is to me, you know, one of the real joys of my all my years covering them. So, you know, Peter, when you think about the day the Red Sox acquired David Ortiz, Arias, like, and I'm not sure how that actually happened. Do you think the front office? saw this coming? Did they see this type of figure? Sure, you could see the talent, but do you think they he would, did they know he could be so transformational in all these intangible ways? I don't think so, Doug. I, I, I know, I mean, at that time, um, Theo Epstein was scrambling, just trying to get guys. I mean, they really thought Jeremy Giambi was going to be a huge uh, factor in Fenway Park, and it just didn't work. He got hurt and so forth. Um they, but they brought a lot of guys. Bill Miller won the batting title that year. And then the next year, um, got the winning hit off uh, uh, after Dave Roberts stole base. He got the hit off uh, Mariano. And um, it was, I think they had a lot of hope for him, but it was just um, Theo going, you know, we don't have, we're not going to go out and spend a ton or spend a lot of capital in the minor leagues because they really didn't have that much at that point. And uh, we'll just do it any way we can, we can and hope that we, we get lucky. And then um, Ortiz had great power. Who knows what happens when they get the ball? And also, I think and it's one of the most important things. How does a human being react to being in Fenway Park and playing for the Red Sox? I mean, uh, it's Matt Holliday always wanted to play in Boston. He, as you know, he grew up entirely in a baseball family and loves the game. 
because he said during the 2007 World Series, he loved playing in Boston because it's the one place where fans don't react, they anticipate. And because they're so close to the fields with the players, there's more tension in Fenway than any other park. He said, I think it's tougher to play here than it is to play in Yankee Stadium. And um, and Troy Tulisky heard him and has always said the same thing. But Ortiz loved that. I mean, and he loved people. I mean, I, I, the stuff I do with kids in the city and um, this place, the base, um, and where there's some of their teams. So they've won some tournaments. And every time, you know, I would arrange so they could come over and they'd have tickets, but they could also go out on the field. And I think had to be at least five times when David volunteered twice Sunday morning. I mean, after a Saturday night game, come out, he would talk, play, just, just befriend those kids for like an hour. And he, he for a while, he had a restaurant out in Framingham. And he went a couple of times, hired buses, had those kids brought out to his restaurant, fed them all. I mean, just, it just, well, um, I thought it'd be great for the kids. You know, this, this is what I could do for people. And he said, you know, I, I see there are, there are a lot of Dominican Latin kids on the team. That makes it even better. You know, I don't think they get to go to Big Poppy's restaurant and Frey we have all the time and that kind of thing. Peter, I do want to ask you about the, uh, the PED subplot that involves David. And uh, you told the story about Appleton, Wisconsin. Uh, we know we had power then. I can actually remember spring training, 2002 Fort Myers, pretty sure I was standing there with you watching David Ortiz take batting practice in spring training with the twins, people buzzing then about his power. And a lot of people have have looked at him, heard this a lot in the last week, um, as a guy who, they think he was a guy who was never did anything, uh, before he got to Boston and then turned into this Hall of Fame monster as soon as he got to Boston uh, and have, have made accusations, have, have connected dots. And yet something really interesting happened in the voting. I uh, wrote about this, too, on Tuesday night. Nearly two-thirds of voters who don't vote for Bonds or Clemens or Manny did vote for David Ortiz, which tells you that if there were PED clouds hanging over that guy, they dismissed him. And so I, I, I wonder how you look at that whole aspect of this as someone who knows him, saw him play, and also knew him when. Well, I did, um, in the last month and six weeks, um, I've tried to do as much research on 2003 as possible. And Doug, you were still playing, and um, but I remember, and, and I've I've started out a lot of times writing about the compromise. I mean, Gene Orso was head of the NLRB, and the Fourth Amendment, you, you, the, the very strict about who can be tested and who can't. Uh, and we know Gene is a brilliant uh, labor law. Um, mind. And um, Rob Manfred was on the other side. And 2002, go back to 2002, 
and the basic agreement. And whether or not there would be drug testing was, I mean, Bud Silly really wanted it. And the owners really wanted it. Um, Gene did not, Gene and Don did not feel that it, it could be, it could be fair. Well, they came up with, a, as, as Gene and, 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 and Rob did a lot, they com- came up with co- a compromise, which um, I still think is the greatest miracle of, uh, of, of labor in, in baseball. And they came up with this idea, okay, if 5% of the players, they'll have a year of testing, anonymous, no punishment uh, to be attached, a test. And what I was told and explained, um, there are only two people who actually know who tested positive all these years, Gene Orson and the commissioner. And neither one will ever renege on the agreement to never never break the silence. So, um, but at that, at the beginning, they were finding everyone was testing positive one way or another. And it was because of, especially because of, of certain things they got at GNC and places like that, that were not illegal. And one was Andro. I, I'm not real good on the drug, so uh, I, I don't remember the other one. But um, so they had to be able to break the test down and so that 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 they wouldn't be actually ruled as t- positive tests because of the others. So most players had to take the test twice. And the woman at the, at the testing company in California, who I was t- I'm told had great integrity, used the original list, and that was the list that the Fed seized when they when they seized the the. Uh, those test results, and then and then eventually fed them to, to the New York Times, and and but the the realists um, were there were questions about there were there was a list of people questions about what what they took from GNC, and then the other one was guys were absolutely cleared once they took the, the second test, and that's where Rob Manfred was going, but he couldn't say why. Uh, remember when he said uh, Ortiz in so many words doesn't really fit here, and I never understood why. But um, as it was explained to me, um, now I think I pretty much understand. And I don't know. I mean, I have no idea whether David Ortiz tested positive or not. But if it's a one-time thing, and there was the, the whole GNC uh, nutriment or whatever the thing is called. Uh, involved. Um, I mean, I, I don't think that should keep him out of the Hall of Fame. Yeah. Well, yeah, Peter, I mean, I think the, the tough thing, the thing that I grapple with, obviously, is I played in an era where a whole lot of players took PEDs, all right, and it was not a level playing field, and they knew what they were doing. This is not something that you accidentally trip into. You you have regiments, you have trainers, and and all that. But yes, it's hard to say who did what exactly. I mean, there's some that are clear, but there are many that are not. And I also know a whole lot of people just got away with it. And maybe, and I think you get away with it much more likely when you don't have, when you don't break records. It's better to hit like 512 home runs than 795 because then people notice the history. So, but I, you know, I think in that testing year, I was with the Rangers 
um, and I didn't take it twice. And maybe, you know, there was concerns, but I, what I grappled with was the privacy question. And obviously that was well-founded because confidentiality is kind of a joke these days anyway. And, you know, so even though you're giving this thing and even if you are clean, you don't necessarily want that on the front page of the New York Times, period, because I have my privacy. And so they were trying to, they had the survey testing year to see if there was a problem that was quantifiable instead of the anecdotes of Ken Seiko and Ken Caminiti. And so we took these tests. But of course, if there's an issue, you lose a sample, something breaks, you want to be able to attach this anonymous list that had numbers to it to somebody so they can go back to them. And that's where the privacy started to become a concern. Someone had the key, someone had the information ultimately. And I think there was an effort to embarrass certain people who came out and saying that they didn't take, you know, didn't take it. And then all of a sudden, here's the, we have the evidence or we have at least the stories behind. So yeah, it, it's very complicated. And I don't really give a, a lot of guys hall passes, but I also know that we don't know. We just don't know. And, and playing in an era that to be on the field, at least a level one, there's so many people using that you had to take something to just keep up was categorically unfair and ca- counter to fair competition. And I think the era of steroids was probably the worst time in baseball history that completely diminished the opportunity of people who actually played fair and by the by clean. That's what that's. And so I don't know what you do with that. I think we're going to be dealing with this for a long time. And I think people knew that when you go down this road, this is what happens. You don't know who to vote for. You don't know what's true. You don't know what what's authentic. And that's kind of sad for the game because people, you don't really trust what you're seeing. And those are players who didn't go down that road. You know, you'll never know. And and so I have trouble with even giving certain, you know, players credit. I don't know. I mean, you said Manny Ramirez, you know, one of the greatest right-hand hitters of all time, statistically sure. I, I kind of call him a great performer. Because, you know, I, I don't know what, you know, what he would be or would not be. I was drafted one pick in front of him, by the way. And were the, Cub, were the Cubs idiots or were or was it just something magical happened in his career? I mean, he hit a ball in right, right center field, an A ball, that I thought I was going to cut off in right center field gap and it hit halfway up the light tower. I was like, and this guy was 19 years old. So, you know, I mean, we know later what he, what test he failed, but I don't know. You know, I, I just don't know what began and when. I'm not in their head. They're the only ones who know the truth. And um, it doesn't, you know, I think, and, and just as a teammate, I always have empathy on a certain level for player circumstances and where they came from. Uh, I have trouble with some choices players made to take PEDs, but I also, I do understand the forces that drive people in a hyper-competitive environment. So, uh, but yeah, David has been, you know, a great ambassador, there's no doubt about it. And um, always been open and fun loving. And I think a lot of these guys are that as well. And, and it makes you torn about the innuendos and sometimes the actual data that puts people in the light of how they actually approach their baseball side of the game. And I think we're unfortunately that's the tainted cloud. That's really hard to erase. You know, I completely understand that, but there's still something in me that, that, I can't stand phrases like, well, if his name has been uh, attached to uh, PEDs in any way, therefore I would never vote for him. Well, what, what does that really mean? I mean, people can make a lot of mistakes, and there are players who have been kept out of the hall for theoretical attachments to PEDs who never tested positive. 
Yeah, I mean, mm -hmm. it's unfortunate, Peter, because those of us who, you know, we love the game and we want to see it at its best and we want to see it authentic and we, we hearken back to history. And we know it's a hyper-competitive environment and um, and it's it's something that's going to provoke certain things when the opportunity presents itself to be better anyway, by any means necessary. That's a tough temptation and it put a lot of pressure on people who wanted to stay on the field against. I mean, I watched my my position as center field become a power position in a short period of time. And um, and that was no accident. And and a lot of players, you know, made that choice. And and so, you know, that's to me the the biggest tragedy of it all, because you may make an individual choice or sometimes maybe a, I, I won't call it a mistake. I kind of don't go down that road, but a choice. But the ripple effect of what it does to the game is we're still feeling and we will continue to feel. And by the way, it's probably not completely out of the game, by the way, but that's that's just the cloud that that stays with us and you know and it's and the writers know it those who vote know it more than anybody how hard it's, it's become it's so impossible because it's it's compromised the past and it's compromised the future but that, that's the selfishness of it and you know and the insecurity of it because you're always afraid that someone's going to beat you and how far are you willing to go so you know i know it's going to be unresolved but it's uh <laughs> It's it's going to be with us for a while. Hey, I got great news. A-Rod's only on the ballot through 2031. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Right, he's got so, 10 years left. Right. We've only got nine more years to talk about it. So we've had a lot of practice. I know that. Look, we, Peter, we could talk baseball with you all day. We could talk Hall of Fame with you all day. I'm really sorry we never got to talk music because I know <laughs> that's your real passion in life. But look, it's been so cool to have you visit us here in Starkville. Please come back again sometime, okay? Just invite me, I'll be there. Are you struggling to close deals? B2B selling is tougher than ever, and that's why I wanna tell you about LinkedIn Sales Navigator. One more great product from LinkedIn. You're there to network, you're there to look for jobs, you're there to post jobs, and how about LinkedIn Sales Navigator? It's a sales intelligence platform that helps professionals effectively prospect and engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator helps you target the right buyers, surface key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and shows you hidden allies so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash baseball show. That is linkedin.com slash baseball show for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash baseball show and get started. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, Doug. It's that time again. It is time for listener trivia, our way of involving you, our favorite listeners in this show. 
once again this year, we continue to literally involve you. We pick a trivia question from some lucky listener, then we invite that lucky listener to join us on the show and attempt to stump us with their question. We'll tell you how that works in just a few minutes. Uh, Doug, we've been on a bigger roll than the Colorado Avalanche. <laughs> and like we have gotten six of our last seven trivia questions right. And I keep thinking, what is happening? Got a theory? Oh, uh, the stars aligned very well, but I, I actually don't. I think the brain power finally <laughs> caught up. And, oh, yeah, uh, sure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I try not to get too high on this because I know we can just be the avalanche going down the wrong way fairly soon as well. So I'm going to stay positive. Yeah. Keep the brain going. Yeah, let's go with that. Uh, here, here's a really safe prediction. I, this streak is going to end this week. <laughs> we, we asked for Hall of Fame trivia questions. And the question that we're about to deal with, it's it's too hard for us. Okay, I don't, So I don't know what we were thinking, but let's welcome in this week's special trivia guest star. It is Jordan Castillo. Jordan, welcome to Starkville. Glad to be here. Uh, you know, Jordan, after you tweeted at us, uh, I, I took a look at your Twitter feed and I saw that uh, not only do you work in the work in music, you're a music teacher, right? Uh, but I also saw that the very first tweet mentioned Doug Glanville's favorite band in the history of music, Hall & Oates. And so that means I am going to sit back for the next 30 <laughs> seconds or so, and I'm going to let you and Doug share a little love on Hall & Oates. You're a big fan of Hall & Oates? Um, I'm a big fan of that that era, um, really the '80s '80s music, rock or '70s even. Um, with I think the the whole tweet mentioned Earth, Wind, and Fire, and Ambrosia, and Fleetwood Mac, and that whole um, that whole era of music is something that you know I, I'm 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 a young guy, but an old guy at heart, you know, with the old soul with the with the music. So mm -hmm. that, that's that, that's definitely the stuff that I I try to get my students to to be to at least appreciate a little bit. Yeah, excellent, excellent choice. Uh, so, uh, do you have like a preferential <laughs> tune from Hall Notes? Anything stand out? Uh, I mean, obviously the classics like "Rich Girl." You know, it's you can't go wrong with with what everybody knows. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. Well, um, I'm going to request that you play it for your your class uh, today at some point. You just just I will some, absolutely do that. Yes, of course, of course. <laughs> I will absolutely do that. All right, um, yes. enough of this. Long fan, right. long fan. Go way back. Yes. Enough. Jordan, you make Doug's dreams come true, okay? <laughs> but, right, now is your chance to crush our dreams with a little Hall of Fame trivia. We're, we're not going to get this, so let's just get it moving, bring it on. So my question is, uh, with Shohei Otani becoming the 19th player to earn MVP by unanimous vote, not counting Bonds or the active players who have also received that honor, who are the four players on this list who are not elected to the Hall of Fame? See, I, I tried to think about like potential categories of answers. I think there are two categories to guess here. 
Uh, you've got guys like Bonds who aren't in the hall because of some kind of controversy. It's funny. Like, that's actually how we stumbled into that. Roger Clemens answer that, that, so that enabled us to get the last question right. Uh, so there, there, there's the controversy crowd, PED guys, right? And then there are one-year wonders or mm-hmm. players who had maybe really short bursts of glory. Yeah. Um, so I had Pete Rose on my list. So he's now out. Uh, Sammy Sosa was an MVP. Pretty sure Jason Giambi won an MVP. Mm-hmm. So there, there's guys like that. And then the second group, the <laughs> had a you know had a had a moment, uh, had a had a peak. Roger Maris, Josh Hamilton. I thought about yeah, Josh is a good one. Right, Juan Gonzalez, Dale Murphy, mm-hmm. Don Mattingly. Yep. Okay, like they, these are all guys. They won MVP awards. They're not in the Hall of Fame. <laughs> Here's my problem. I have no idea who was unanimous and who wasn't. So, Doug, like, what do you have a list? So uh, what, you always have guys I'm missing. All right. Well, I'll just throw some names out. So, all right. So, for example, someone like A. Rod is obviously eligible for because he's getting voted on right now, right? So, sure. Is that an answer? Is that a is A. Rod a qualified answer? Uh, he he fits the the description of someone who could be an answer. Okay, all right, that's all I need to know. All right, <laughs> all right so yeah. all right, so all right, yeah, Hamilton. What about like Ichiro Suzuki? Uh, wait, wait, is he in the hall? Wait, not yet. He's okay, not, he's not on the ballot yet. Okay, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna give you guys a pretty big hint. And Juan Gonzalez, all, Jose, all of the Jose Canseco. all of these windows are long past. Or right, they're long past. So long they, past. Yeah, all right, so long the windows of, of, of voting for them have 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 passed. All right, what's what's the definition of long? I'll help you guys out. The we need help. MVP awards were all won before mm-hmm. two thousand. Does that help? So that okay, that cuts so, twenty years right, out of your. Uh, all right, so that means Giambi's out. Josh Hamilton's out. Uh, I mean, it still the, leaves us with with, with Mattingly. Uh, Sosa, Maris, um, Wait, Dave, Murphy, Dave Parker, yeah, Dave not Parker. Hall, so he won. He uh, won unanimously. I don't know. Juan, Justin Morno was like a weird one, wasn't he? That's too recent. Too recent. Yeah, I guess that's right. Because I was still playing. All right. Uh, well, for, uh, Terry Pendleton. That's not recent. Right? That, that was the nineties. Yeah. Uh, he didn't. He didn't seem like a unanimous MVP. Like, yeah, I know. Very controversial. Yeah, nitty. Yeah, like what about Jose Canseco? He was. He was pretty dominant in that year, right? Forty forty and all in that. Eighty eight. Yeah, yeah, the World Series. And yeah, like that's that. A, that's another one. What about Mattingly when he hit like ninety five Grand Slams in a season. Um. Uh, any other like should we beg for any more hints because we're like we're going well i'm assuming it's not a pitcher i thought that was a safe way to eliminate like i mean willie hernandez or steve bedrosian or someone like that i didn't think that was possible no way they were unanimous that was one of my hints however is that one of these players was a pitcher oh my goodness oh no all right well that just Uh, threw me into it but that could be like what era would that be there are a lot more pitcher mvp types oh Verlander Roger Lin- Clemens. Clemens, I have him on a list. Roger Clemens is a possibility. But, but he I saved us last week. What? When did he win? Eighty-six, oh, right? Okay, I'll right? okay. right, we'll put him on there. So we—it was Oof. Roger Clemens, 
Theo Murphy, Theo Juan Murphy. Gonzalez, Dave Parker, or you want Canseco? It doesn't mm. matter. We're, we're going to be wrong. Mm. I mean, when you go forty, <laughs> when you go forty forty, you have to be unanimous, right? Okay, so we'll go him instead of Dave Parker. All right. All right. Uh, yep. Look, we're, I, Doug, that's it. That's it. We're, we're, we're just shooting darts. <laughs> yes, you know? we are. We have, like, we have good names. They're good darts. Uh, I'm sure we've talked ourselves out of right answers. That's what we <laughs> usually do. We're just going to fire away and see what happens. So yeah, that's what worked for us lately. Jordan, any chance that it's Roger Clemens, Juan <laughs> Gonzalez, Dale Murphy, what was your last guess? Jose Doug? Canseco. Jose Canseco. 25%. All right. <laughs> uh, we have Canseco is on the list. All right. Canseco is on the list. Good job, good. Doug. Thanks. I will say that, um, Doug, you did mention in passing, you didn't really del- deliberate on it. You did mention another one on the list uh, with uh, Caminetti. Oh, right. Really? He was unanimous? Wow. Wow. That's wow. shocking. Wow. Okay. I feel good about the other that. Two, the other two were like you mentioned, um, Jason, they were um, in – Previous generation, Al Rosen and Denny McLean. Ooh, okay. Oh, all right. So Al Rosen and Denny McLean. Okay. At least we didn't talk ourselves out of them. We didn't yeah. even think yeah. of them. I did think at one point about Al Rosen, but I thought he was rookie. Then I talked myself into he was rookie of the year, but not MVP. But no, because he's in that Ichiro note of MVP and rookie of the year. Oh, Whatever. Very nice. Whatever. Like here's the here's the thing, Doug. That was good. I feel good about. Can it. we? Can we even feel bad anymore? No. No, as no, hot as we've been, like if you win, if you if you get if you nail six out of seven, and then you finally miss one, yeah, like isn't this how Tony Gwynn must have felt when he went zero for four once every couple months? Yeah, yeah, well, it, it happens. It's like Steph Curry. I mean, I we had six three pointers, we missed a couple. It's fine. We feel, you know, we still had <laughs> yeah. eighteen points in the first we half. We did. We did. We're good. Uh, all right, so we like we 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 totally bungled this but we don't care okay so if if you listen regularly you know that whether we get the question right or wrong we still bring in our mayor tim mcmaster to salvage the segment with some cool play-by-play that involves this week's trivia answer and tim has told me exclusively he is really stoked about this particular <laughs> So, all right, Mr. Mayor, what do you got for us this week? Well, I'm impressed, first of all. 25% on this one. Pretty good. This was this was so hard. <laughs> yeah. um, you thought we Kinseko. were going to get none. I know <laughs> you did. You thought we were. We had no shot at getting to any. I did. Yeah, I would have bet zero on this one. Uh, <laughs> but we are going to go back to uh, the pitcher on the list. Denny McClain, 1968. Mm-hmm. He won the MVP because he won 31 games that year. <laughs> yeah, 31 and 6. They won the World Series, but we're going to go back to win number 30 because it was a good one back in the days when guys always went nine innings. McLean had to wait until the bottom of the ninth inning to get the win. Here you go. Well, this is the big day for the maestro Denny McLean. Saturday afternoon at Tiger Stadium, September the 14th, 1968, and Denny will be going for win number 30. Here's the set by Segee, the pitch. Swung on, a shot, the map. That'll be the ball game. It's over the head of Gosman. Of the 1968 season. 
Ernie ah, Harwell on the call. Nice. Uh, Willie ah, Horton with the walk-off hit. Horton, wow. I, I have goosebumps listening to Ernie Harwell call a guy's 30th win because nobody's ever going to win 30 games again. That was the last time anybody is going to call a 30th win. So wow. that was really cool. It makes everybody forget that we got the question wrong. Mission accomplished. Good so work. Tim, great clip. Jordan, great question. Thank you for joining us in Starkville, man. This has been awesome. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Jordan. So, what we often do at the end of this show is we take a trip to the dugout. Get it? That's where mm -hmm. Doug Glanville hangs out and tells us stories of his life and his times and his baseball career. Today, got Doug all egged on to tell big poppy stories. But we're going to start with one of the great pieces of David Ortiz trivia ever. Doug, I know that you vividly remember the very first game of David Ortiz's major league career. So why would that be? <laughs> well, vividly, I had to refresh my vivid, vivid memory on this one. But I vividity? Do, yeah, vividity. Is that a word? That sounds great. Actually. No, I got it. I like it. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to coin that. Um, steal it from you. So yeah, David Ortiz came up and it was interleague play. So he was at the Twins, and uh, I happened to be in left field later in the game, and I think he came off the bench, if I'm not mistaken, right? It's a he pinch did. hit. Okay. So David Ortiz hits uh, his first major league at bat, and what does he do? He flies out to left field, and who catches the ball? <laughs> I happen to be standing in the right place. <laughs> so I can go down in history, Hall of Famer David Ortiz, first major league at bat, he flies out to me in left field in interleague play. So that is one for the trivia books out there. Oh, my God. Crazy. Like, it, like I, when I when I knew we were going to tell David Ortiz stories, like, <laughs> it never occurred to me that we would be able to connect the dots between his debut and you. <laughs> so, yeah. like, did you ever talk to him about that fly ball? Did you ever tell him? Well, it's, it's interesting. It, it, it came up somewhat actually recently and it's probably you know like sort of a down low production thing but i won't reveal too many secrets but i was supposed to do something with david and uh when this this uh, rep called me they were like oh well we know that you caught david ortiz's first first at bat yeah so they Come knew on. all this yeah so that was kind of the, the the story to lead into it but um yeah i mean and you know it's one way we're connected certainly but uh, it's pretty cool i mean i i haven't seen the video i gotta figure out a way to find it so i'm, I'm doing what i can on the cub side yes to track that down i think it'd be pretty cool yes too. if yeah. if you find it we need to hear it yeah yeah that would have be really to hear cool. it yeah, yeah okay it. this was september i'm looking this up now september 2nd 1987 oh, 97. and no, all right too so okay it's <laughs> So it's the top of the seventh inning. Uh, twins at Wrigley. Yeah. Mark Clark's on the mound. Yep. Doug, your team's winning nine to two, and David Ortiz pinch hits for one of the many Twins relievers that day, Travis Miller. And it says fly ball to deep left center field. Deep it was deep. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. Fly ball to deep. <laughs> so much for your vividity. Yeah. All right. Let's. Let's keep let's keep going, man. Um, what did David 
tell you one time how he knew it was time to retire. <laughs> well, the irony of this is that he kept playing for a little bit longer. But I, <laughs> so I he did, didn't really know. Yeah, I had to. I had to. I mean, this is David, right? At his finest, right? He just he's talking. He's he's throwing everything out there, and he's he's so uh, open. And I know it was a, it was a Cubs Red Sox interleague play, and I was covering the game, and uh, I remember him on the field. And I think there was a young Anthony Rizzo or some of the young players. And David Ortiz was basically in their stretch group, just talking to them and just talking about the game and strategy, offering tips. I mean, that was him. He just loved the game, loved talking baseball, and didn't care if you were the opponent. He just wanted to share information to younger players and pass things on. So he was really an ambassador, a real diplomat about the game and, and wanting it to sort of be, you know, be that mentor. So at one point, you know, the Cubs weren't that good, actually, at this point. And... Um, and I think the I think it was 2014, so they were just kind of on the cusp of getting you know getting their stride, and the but the Cubs had a lot of great arms in the bullpen, so at one point I was talking to him about hey you know what do you think I mean everybody throws hard these days, and you know how can you keep up you're the older guy now and and the guys throwing a hundred off off the pen, and he's like oh I don't know how long I could do this. I don't know how long I could do this because, you know, these guys, this isn't a team that's even doing well. And everybody comes in. They have lefties throwing 97 with cutting. He said the movement, the velocity, and the all-out effort because they don't have to leave anything in the tank. He said it's just completely different. There's no break coming. You know, you used to want to knock the starter out just so you can pile on on the relievers who were failed starters. Now, strategically, they're there for a purpose. Usually a guy's in the pen just to get you out. And he verbalized this so well and talk about, he's like, I, like I, I don't know how long I can play and keep up with these guys. They're just so much younger and they throw so hard. And the movement, this is not like something I've never seen in a guy that's like a fifth inning reliever. So, um, so Ortiz was always really open about that. And yeah, of course he ended up having MVP caliber seasons uh, the next couple of years. I don't think he was on fire at the time, but he ended up picking it up. But you know, that was, that was David just talking freely and let you know about the next generation's coming, and he's not sure he can keep up. Yeah, so everybody throws a 1,000 miles an hour. Yeah. So I'm going to have to quit this sport. <laughs> and, oh, wait, I'm going to hit 200 more homers first. Oh, yeah, <laughs> let, me, let me do that <laughs> so, right now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, all right, uh, one more. Now, when we talked to Peter Gammons, he told the story of that day after the marathon bombing, the uh, Our Bleeping City speech. Yeah. Just a reminder that David Ortiz was not afraid to speak his mind ever. And uh, Doug, I know that you and David had a conversation about that whole thing, uh, why it mattered to speak your mind. Uh, I'm just curious what about that conversation left its mark on you? Well, it really stuck with me and, and so much so that the class that I teach at UConn, I, I use this conversation and others around it for an article I wrote about the the challenge of players speaking out on social issues and, and why that's so difficult. And so at one point I just caught David Ortiz, I think it was on the road maybe in Baltimore or something, but I, I caught him at his locker and he just he just wanted to talk more about it. And I think a lot of conversations, you know, Adam Jones, you know, often spoke on things. So he he kind of picked up. And what was so educational about it was that he explained the fear. He said, although I do speak on things, I, I have these concerns. And one of which was that, you know, I, I liked how he described it. He said, although there's important things to discuss and we have a certain platform, 
He said, there's also an entire industry out there that makes a lot of money on my mistakes and makes a lot of money on me misquoted or saying something that I didn't quite get out the right way. So he kind of talked about how he handles that. And he said, you know, it's important to have editors, you know, and, and, and be patient in your responses. So it was so fascinating to hear the tactical way that he understood how to communicate. When you think of someone like Ortiz, who's so open, right, and emotional and jumps in the fray, he also was strategic when it came to certainly social media and when he wanted to actually jump in. And there's times, like you said, the Boston Marathon where, you know, it's overwhelming. And, and then there's a universality around a need to, to address. It's not some dividing political social issue where you kind of know you're going to split, you know, 50-50 one way or the other when you speak on it. But he, you know, he, he was interesting in that he framed how the the sort of decision to speak out and then the, the recognition that you might divide an audience and that, as he said, I'm not just David Ortiz anymore. That's something that he expressed as a challenge because I have to speak on behalf of something larger, whether it's me in uniform as a Red Sox, whether it's the fact that I represent an agency, a company, a brand, all these things have me reframe and think about you know, what I'm saying and on behalf of whom until there's something maybe that's so overwhelmingly powerful like the Boston Marathon, the bombing that he felt compelled to, to reach out. So I, I think, you know, what I pulled from that from my class, and I talked to Adam Jones, I talked to, to Chris Archer, I talked to, um, you know, so many players around this at the time. And, you know, each player, Sean Doolittle was great, each player recognized that there's a power that you have as an athlete to reach many people. Uh, but Tory Hunter said it pretty well. He said, uh, but if you're not careful, uh, the, um, you know, when you talk about the masses, you may not, there may not be an M in front of masses if you're not careful. <laughs> That's how he talked about it. <laughs> so, so he, you know, there's an understanding even amongst the collective players, especially the veterans, about, you know, the fraught waters that you can enter and that you have to do it judiciously. So it was refreshing to hear the strategy. It was refreshing to hear that he understood that although there's a time and a place for certain things, that he, he wants to be effective as well. And he has fans that have different viewpoints that he also wants to preserve those relationships. And how do you balance that with taking on social issues with something he really navigated as well as anyone? And uh, so that was really informative. And I've used it for many years now to inform students. True. Uh, you know, we don't think about that side of it very often. Um, you know, like the, the conversation about should athletes speak out is it feels like it's like it's a do I or don't I choice when it really is about when, mm-hmm. like when matters way more than whether <laughs> more, matters more than I should or I shouldn't. And uh, David, David Ortiz, uh, just the intelligence and the feel for moments and for people is what allowed him to navigate that space. It's not easy. And, uh, you know, I think about that a lot when I think of David. uh, But, you know, the thing I think the most, I I think, is I I keep using that term larger than life, right? This whole show was a reminder of why David Ortiz was larger than life. Every moment we talked about, every story Peter Gammons told, all your tales, Doug. Uh, just a fun guy to watch and talk about. Uh, this is a time 
because he got elected to the Hall of Fame to mostly remember and celebrate. So, Doug, thanks for sharing your stories. Uh, thanks for sharing that you were the man who caught the first <laughs> ball David Ortiz ever hit. Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> Tremendous. Uh, okay, that's going to do it for this week's show. Uh, we'll be bringing you more of this podcast magic, magic all season long on the Athletic Baseball Show, which is available in its entirety, absolutely free at Apple, Spotify, everywhere you get your podcasts. If you'd like to read our work or any of the incredible writing on our site, there is no better sports writing being done anywhere than in The Athletic. So if you've thought about subscribing, now's a fine time. Just go to theathletic.com slash baseball show. And if you're a new subscriber, you can subscribe for one third off our normal rates. Oh my God, what a deal. Uh, also remember, you too can be part of this podcast every show. We invite the listener who submits the most fun trivia question of the week to join us right here and prove once again, there's almost no baseball trivia question we can't get wrong. So how would you submit that question? You could always email us at Starkville at theathletic.com or there's the Twitter. If you want to use the Twitter, you can tweet at say Doug Glanville, but how would that work? So, well, if you want to reach me, it's it's always easy. I haven't changed it in years. It's just at Doug Glanville, D-O-U-G-G-L-A-N-V-I-L-L-E. Pretty catchy, and I'm going to spell too. I'm at J-A-Y-S-O-N-S-T, Jason with a Y-S-T. Remember, hashtag your questions, hashtag Starkville QS. Doug, thanks for playing. Thanks to Peter Gammons for the big poppy tales. Thanks to Jordan Castillo for the great trivia question. Thanks to the mayor of Starkville, Tim McMaster, for producing us and putting up with us. And thanks to you all for listening. Coming up next on the Athletic Baseball Show, it's Ken Rosenthal and his must-listen mailbag. And Doug and I will see you soon on Starkville.